In this episode, we chat with Peter Christodolo, a partner at Francisco Partners, which is a leading global investment firm that specializes in partnering with technology and technology-enabled businesses. Peter joined the firm in 2008 and focuses on investments in the financial technology and application software sectors. He currently serves on the board of directors of Alston Trading, Dynamo, NMI, Paradigm, Payscale, Sourcegrub, TS Imagine, and Verifone, and is also involved in FP's investments in Betterment, Gain Systems, X Capital, Prosper Marketplace, and Renaissance. We chat about how he approaches his relationship with each company he invests in, the value he and the firm bring to management teams, and FP's commitment to ESG, among other topics. We hope you enjoy the show. So, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's a delight to be with you. I'd actually like to start off this conversation with a quote. The word partner connotates the basic thought of working shoulder to shoulder, driving towards a common goal. Not only does Francisco Partners epitomize that concept, but I believe Peter developed it within the company. I am proud to say he is a great partner for me, along with many within the Verifone team, as he works tirelessly driving solutions which benefit all parties involved. He is an icon within the fintech space and always seems to not only know what is happening, but is typically in the middle of it, which only makes my job easier as CEO. It has been an honor working with him. This quote was provided by Mike Pulley, CEO of Verifone. I wanted to start there because it's, I think it's rare and unique that an investor would receive such praise you know, from a CEO they had invested in. Can you tell us about how you approach your relationship with each company that you invest in? Absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me today, RJ. I really appreciate it. So what I would say is I, I try to morph into what they need me to be. And in different situations uh, require different solutions. I'd say sometimes it's a company that's working great and we're trying to you know, go from good to great or great to excellent, or we're trying to accelerate or do, do M&A or, or provide sort of advice, just straight up advice on how to do things for maybe younger CEOs. In the case of Mike Pulley, we were rebooting a company. The company was, was a legacy company that needed, needed to be rebooted. And we worked with him shoulder to shoulder for the six months ahead of closing to really get him to prepack as much as possible so that he he could on day one really go start driving change in a company and that was i think a lot of the quote he just said was was around that because we tried to arm him with everything he needed to to kind of hit the ground running and not take 6 to 12 months to kind of ramp up organically now obviously that happens too you know we were we were there in the trenches with him both prior to him taking the seat but also going forward you know as things develop and and we've had on that one we've had some you know, COVID and supply chain and things like that have not been not been easy to always maneuver. But we're there with him, trying to figure out exactly how we can support not just Mike at Verifone, but but all of our CEOs. Mm-hmm. And I like to ask about how investors provide value to the companies they invest in beyond just the capital. You know, we like to think of growth-oriented investors as those that have capabilities they can extend. You know, to the CEOs and management teams they invest in. And maybe we do this within the context of some of the, you know, recent deals you've done, or you could draw on, you know, maybe better examples, but you had a very productive 2021 
you know, I'll, I'll rattle off a handful of TS Imagine, Dynamo Software, NMI, Betterment, Source Scrub, Paradigm. Maybe you pick and tell us about how you kind of look at some of these companies and, and kind of what you're doing to help them out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say we are really involved investors. And what I mean by that is we actually are trying to help our companies transform from one thing to another. And I think what we, we always start at the beginning of an investment, sort of saying like, okay, here's where we are now. What do we want this to look like in three or four years? And let's define that as, in as many ways as we can, or as clearly as we can. And then let's talk about what you need to kind of get there. And so oftentimes that's a lot of different levers. It's, it's, there's a sort of a menu of, of options on how to do that, but it's not always the same ones employed in, in, in each situation. So I would say, you know, oftentimes there's M&A involved. Sometimes there's managerial, some managerial change. Maybe it's not wholesale change, but some, some change. Sometimes it involves a strategy shift. Maybe it's, it's towards more growth or maybe it's towards more profits or maybe it's, it's taking the company to, to Europe or, or, or other, other places. So I'd say uh, sometimes it's an, just a, a straight like, hey, we've, you know, what worked from zero to 50 of revenue isn't going to work from 50. We want to go from 50 to 200. So we, we probably need to upgrade some things or maybe we need to take some roles and divide them up because your CTO probably shouldn't be your head of product and your head of IT and your the person running the SaaS the platform uh, on a day-to-day basis or the knock. So we're we're constantly kind of looking at at all those things and saying like how how can we help our company scale? And so I think the one thing that sort of flows through uh, all those situations is evolution. I mean, we are in order for companies to become better, they need to change. And so you need to be not afraid to hit those issues right on their face and right up front. We try very hard not to be passive aggressive or, or unclear or whatever, even if it's uncomfortable, it's like, you know, even if it's an uncomfortable conversation right up front, we'd rather have that. And then the person's like, they think about it or they say like, okay, you know, right. We, we actually probably should split my job into two, into two jobs because, you know, when this company's twice as big, like I can't do both these things. And so we often have those. And sometimes it's a little awkward up front, but I think everyone appreciates it and knows that we're trying to grow the companies. We're trying to grow the companies. We're trying to grow them organically and organically make them more, more profitable, you know, maybe by design less profitable if we want to, if we want to do things differently. But, but I'd say we're always trying to pull all those levers. And I think our operating team also really helps us in those regards, because sometimes they can talk with our companies in a way that investors, you know, can't because they can say, Hey, look, we are, you know, I was a head of sales and marketing and, or, or, you know, if, if I were the, if our, our, our operating team, they can, they can go into a company and say, Hey, like we, we were in your shoes and, you know, let me tell you what's going to happen in two years if we don't make some changes now, because this machine's going to break if we don't prep it for scale. And it, it seems like you sit on a lot of boards. And I was kind of curious how you kind of manage your involvement, you know, with each of the companies. And so is it that you do have an operating team involved with each of the companies and you're kind of coordinating while still serving as kind of counsel to the CEO? How does, how does it work? How do you kind of manage and allocate your time? It's a very good question. That's tricky, but we try to, uh, we work a lot, but that's, that's our job. But I'd say, I'd say typically the first year of an investment is more involved. And it's because we are, we did just all the stuff I just talked about. We tried to define where they want to go. What do they need to get there? How do we, we might need to take a half step back 
to take two steps forward or break some things down to build them back up. And so usually that first year, maybe year and a half, two years can be much more involved, not just for me, but from our ops team. And, and I'd say we really push our companies. Like, let's really talk about what we want this to be and what like let's let's prep now for what we want it to be, you know, then or let's figure out what we need to do and, and go do it. And so I'd say usually after like year two, you know, if things go to go to plan, you know, typically we're more on cruise control and it's okay, like this this machine's humming and let's just let it hum. Now sometimes it's it takes less time, sometimes it takes more time, sometimes, you know, you get you get thrown a curveball. But I'd say the way, you know, a lot of the investments, and this is also why we, we stayed in Dynamo Software and we stayed in NMI, two of the deals last year that we are now, we are, we are now joint control with another sponsor in both those because they're working. They're working great. They grow really nicely. They make money. They have M&A opportunities and they actually won't be that much of my time going forward because the machine's humming. And so that's great. And, um, but look, time management is like, is like the number one issue. Capital in the in the private markets now is plentiful, and you know there's more firms starting. There's there's firms that are you know raising bigger and bigger funds, and so some may view capital as as a commodity. You're very productive. You're able to do a lot of good deals, and so what do you think it is that's enabled you to be as productive as you are, and to be able to kind of you know, showcase to the companies why you're, you know, the ideal partner. Well, I, I appreciate those those kind words. I would say we, we try really to to block out all the noise. The market is enormous in fintech or in software, very dynamic. Lots of stuffs going on. You could spend all day just reading headlines, things that that, that are happening in in the sectors. And we really try not to do that. Uh, you know, we do that a little bit, obviously, because you sort of have to, but. We really try to think about like what, where are good opportunities for us? And what I mean by that is where, what are situations where we can go to a company or approach a company and say, look, we are your ideal partner and here's what we'd like to try to do. With, we think we could do with you. Here's our experience. Here's our credibility in doing things that look like this. Here's our plan. Here's our, the advisors or experts that we could bring to bear. And so we try not to just fall into looking at every company that's for sale or every company that's out there looking for capital. Instead, we try to do the opposite and say, like, what companies do we want to go pursue? What companies do we want to try to go provide capital to? And then go make a very, you know, very targeted approaches to them. I think a lot of our best deals have had those attributes. If the first time you're finding out about a company or even learning the name of a company is when Goldman Sachs is selling it, they're calling up 50 of our best friends to look at it too. Like that's probably not a great opportunity for us. Uh, even if we are really well situated, well, if we're really well situated, we would have known the company already. And if we really were well positioned, then we would have been six or 12 months ahead of that in some way. So I would just say, we try to block out the noise, really think about it the opposite way and say, where do we have a right to win? Where, where are we unfairly advantaged relative to everyone else? And I, and I don't mean that just in terms of a deal dynamics or getting deals done, but like, where can we really help our, like, like we see a company, we say, we can make this three times bigger and we know exactly how to go do that. So let's go, let's go approach them. The other thing we we like to look at with firms is how they're doing on the ESG front. There's no kind of hard and fast rule on what makes a firm great at ESG and and what makes a firm you know bad at ESG. But can you tell us what 
you know, Francisco Partners has been doing on that front? Absolutely. Uh, and it's, it was, it's always been an enormous issue, but I think it's, it's even more so a point, a topic that we, we take super seriously at Francisco Partners. Um, all of our companies, before we invest in them, go through ESG audits. We look at the entirety of, you know, there's a, ESG is a lot of different perspectives. It's not, uh, it, it obviously covers a lot of things, but it's both so- soft and hard things as well. And I think some of our companies, I think where there is a social good or there is a, a positive, you know, social societal benefit, we rank that highly also. Some of our companies are providing services to people that, you know, maybe didn't exist before. So obviously there's environmental and there's all the pieces to ESG on governance and compliance and whatnot. But there's there's also, you know, you know, different if our products in say in our education software companies are helping students learn better, like that's great. We have a company, Betterment, that's helping people manage their finances and money better. And sure, it's a money-making, we want to make money on our investment, but 725,000 people you know, get great financial advice from Betterment. And that's really gratifying also. So I think it's, uh, yes, we do do the sort of formal you know, ESG kind of analysis and audits and, and make sure that we're up to snuff there. But then there, we also look at these other things and say, hey, look, is this a company I'm proud of investing in that I want to tell my family about that I I feel like everyone will be proud that we're associated with. And is there typically job growth kind of post investment in in a company? How do you, you know, this this may vary kind of depending on the given situation, investment situation, but do you typically see job growth in the companies you invest in? Absolutely, for sure. You know, maybe there's some situations where that isn't the case where we have a maybe a legacy company that needs to needs to have some rationalization in order to survive and then grow off of, off of you know a new base. But I'd say in 90 plus percent of the situations, it's job growth from day one and it's investing for growth. I mean, in, in technology, yeah, we like profits too. Okay, who doesn't? But the way we get paid, the way, the way that we, uh, we're not altruists, right? Uh, the, the, you know, the way we get paid is through growth and that's not just growth in revenue, but that's growth in jobs, that's growth in opportunity. And I'd say one of the things we really like to do is give those sort of younger people or mid-level people in a company opportunities to, to go step up. And that's part of what I was saying about before, you know, maybe you split up someone's job or you give, you know, when you give someone who's 30, you know, the opportunity to go run a business group or something, it's incredibly powerful. And they, they will go at that super hard if, you, if they are given a differentiated opportunity and they really value it. So you find the right talent and you empower them. It's really great. So it's, we don't, it's funny. It, we're always looking through the windshield, not in the rear view mirror. It's not kind of what you have done. It's what are you going to do? And how do we empower you to go do that and make you care a lot about it? Because we care a lot about it. And a, a couple more questions as, as we kind of round out our, our chat here. And, and these may be leaning more towards the, the personal side, but could you tell us a, a, about a time you found particularly challenging as an investor and how you were able to get through it? For sure. There's lots of examples. It's not... <laughs> It can be a stressful job. One company where we invested and in, in the first the first six months were, I would say, horrible. And they're horrible for one really clear reason, which is the CEO of the company, it, it had been his fourth fourth exit of different types, not all private equity, but he had a he, he had hit his fourth exit. He had made a lot of money and he just stopped working. And what was really troubling for me is that the first bullet in my investment memo was strong leader. This is a guy we want to work with. He's a superstar. And he had been a superstar <laughs> four times over. But he he just started mailing it in after our deal. And he he kind of, I think, 
for a lot of reasons. He, he didn't tell us that he just, his body, like he had sort of had cognitive dissonance or something where his body and his mouth were brain were saying different things. And he, he just wasn't, his heart wasn't in it. He wasn't working hard at all. He was showing up at the office maybe one day a week, we found out. And the company just started sort of disintegrating over the first six months of our investment. And it was incredibly embarrassing for me because I pounded the table with my partners to go do this deal, really to invest behind this guy, among other things. And then I, you know, finding myself six months into investment, having to get on a plane and fire the guy. And it was incredibly uncomfortable for me, for him. We just written a multi hundred million dollar check into this company and uh, he had taken a bunch of money off the table. And so it was just very, very awkward and very, and I'm taking a lot of heat internally, taking, you know, a lot, we've, we've got other people around the situation that are, it's tough when you're, when you're, when, when that's the circumstance, but you know, we had the courage, I think partly, partly because of our operating team at Francisco Partners Consulting to help us get around the situation, really understand what's going on. We started hearing these anecdotes that were really bad and we decided to go make a change. And maybe 10 years ago, I wouldn't have had the courage to go do that without our operating team being so involved we probably would have let it go for another six months. We saw a lot of stuff we didn't like. The company's performance started eroding quickly. We started seeing some exits from the company and we went and made a change. And I'm really glad we did. I think after that, things got a lot better and uh, the investments actually turned out to be a very good one. But I'd say that that first six, nine months was harrowing. And it's no fun to have to go fire someone or you know have to go make a change like that. But it's especially not, not a lot of fun when you've hung your investment thesis on, on backing the guy. So. Mm-hmm. Was, was there any uh, sentiment of, uh, cause it sounds like it was, it was quite a while ago when you were much younger, maybe in your earlier years. So was there any sentiment of, well, you know, you're, you're a young investor. You may not be, you know, making the decision based on experience. Yes. <laughs> yes, there was a lot of questioning going on, but you know, you're not really tested when things go well. You're tested when you have a situation like that and it's when you're an investor like I am and all my peers I'm sure would say the same thing, which is you're going to have situations come up. Your things are not going to always go well. You're going to have executives or or markets or companies do things you don't like them to do or don't want them to do. The question is not are those things going to happen? The question is, how do you react to them? And, you know, when, when the heat gets turned up, what do you do about it? And, and that is really, I think the question. And so, you know, that was that, and I was a younger investor and that was a tough, that was one of the, you know, I think it was the third deal I'd led or something. And yeah, it was, it was really stressful. My wife telling me like, what's wrong, Peter? Like, you seem really upset. I'm like, yeah, I'm upset. Like, (laughs) Let's end on a maybe less stressful note. Hopefully, I didn't, we didn't raise your cortisol by recalling that situation. But it sounds like it ended up well. So it's, overall, it was a, a good uh, learning. Can you tell us about a book that you read that had a profound impact on you? A book recommendation, essentially. Okay. <laughs> it's embarrassing to say, but I don't read as many books as I should these days. And um, it's been a while since I've been reading at a clip that I'd like to. But I would say there's a, there's a bunch of books that, that I've liked at different times. I'd say one of the books that I think is the most interesting is there's a book by Ernest May called Strange Victory. And it's a history book. It's nothing to do with investing or software or fintech or anything, but it's, I, yeah. think it's, I think it's a really interesting thing to read. And it's about the beginnings of the war in Europe in World War II and how the 
common the common narrative is that Germany just ran over France and France was ill prepared and blah blah blah. But the actual reality wasn't that at all. France was very well prepared, and there's a whole series of of things that happened that that allowed Germany to 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 take over France. The common narrative is actually not right at all, and how really a series of a series of very of missteps and a series of you know sort of unfortunate events allowed allowed that to happen. I, and I, the reason I raise it is because it's sort of like the don't judge don't judge a book by its cover. Don't don't judge a situation by the kind of common narrative. And it's something I use in, in investing now a lot. Is you sometimes situations will come up and it'll be it'll be like, hey, this company's you know maybe they want to do something. And if you if you go with the common narrative, sometimes you miss things. Sometimes you miss great opportunities, or you don't see them because because everyone's chirping in the market about something and but that might not be right that might not be the reality and it it rarely is as good as people think or as bad as people think you know sometimes there's there's more nuance to it and so i think that's a book it's like a 700 page book it'll take you know i i read it in like two days because i was so engrossed by it but i think it's a study in kind of not taking taking things for granted and sometimes the best investments are when you you go look at something that everyone else has said no to because maybe they are all thinking about that common narrative. Well, that's a good uh, note and insight to uh, end on. So Peter, I want to thank you again for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Well, thanks so much for having me, RJ. This has been a super, it's been a pleasure and uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully this is helpful. 